What's up, y'all? This is Jason. Hey, it's Josh. Welcome to season three. Say that to say say this. this. (laughs) What's up, y'all? Welcome to Say That to Say This. You know, Josh is not with me today, my co-host, so I got to hold it down, but I got a group of amazing men here with me today. Um, it's Friday, so you know this is a wonderful day for everybody. Anybody that ain't happy on a Friday, I don't even really know what's wrong with you. Monday I can understand, but Friday I don't get it at all. But again, man, we're happy to have a few guests joining us. I'm going to let these guys introduce themselves. I'm going to kick it off to the left. My name is Garrett Jackson. I'm uh, an attorney here in town and have been involved in Mission St. Louis for over 10 years now. My name is Daniel Hawthorne. I have been in St. Louis for about seven years, been involved with Mission St. Louis for, I think, five. I'm Pete Woods. I'm also an attorney. I've been participating. I had to look it up, but uh, January of 2013, mm. so almost nine years now. OG. I, I've been an OG, <laughs> and I've been carrying Jason Watson around this program the whole time. Man, thank you for the carrying, man. Thank you for the carrying. I'm a big bag. But nah, man, you know, on, on this podcast, Say That to Say This, we really like to open up dialogue. Um, sometimes it centers around work that we've done. Sometimes it's just, you know, random conversations. You know, so definitely want to talk about you guys' experiences. And for the listeners, we want you to kind of learn a little bit about who these guys are and the role that they've intended to play in the city. And um, even at the time that they give, you know, even not just to our program, but in other work that they do as well. But uh, if, if if you don't know Pete Woods, you know, we're, we're going to have some good conversation. Uh, and, and, and me and Pete go back and forth like – you know how you got good friends and y'all always argue, but y'all so cool. Like y'all argue and then the next day is like it didn't matter. It's cool. That's how me and Pete are. You need those type of people that's going to push on you. That's going Pete is definitely going to share his opinion. Uh, and I don't even mean that negatively, but, you know, just being rubbed and, you know, being pushed is always a healthy thing, man. It's iron sharpening iron. Bro. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you don't got those type of people in your life, you probably ain't living no way. You know what I'm saying? So I just kick it off, man, about just tell us a little bit about um, where you grew up at and how you got involved with Mission St. Louis. Cool. Uh, So this is Garrett again. I grew up in St. Joseph, Missouri, about an hour north of Kansas City. Um, Important part of my background and how I got involved in Mission St. Louis is that my grandfather was a grocer there. He managed a grocery store uh, and then also at our local church. He managed the food kitchen. Um, So it was always a kind of a a situation in my life that it was important to find some sort of vehicle to give back to your community. So I moved here to St. Louis uh, to go to law school at St. Louis University and ended up living in the Grove where the former location of Mission St. Louis was operated out of. And I'd also gone to the journey for many years, uh, church that was affiliated or Mm. loosely affiliated with previously. Um, And once I finished up in school, I started working at a local hospital here, got to be involved in some hiring decisions around especially entry level positions was not what I went to school for <laughs> at all. Who, go, who does what they go to school <laughs> for anyway? <laughs> but as I, as I would always tell the guys here in the program, 
it set me on a pathway where I felt comfortable talking about job training, interview processes, because I had been involved in that interview process for like five solid years. Hmm. Gave me that foundation to feel comfortable, like I could uh, could give advice to somebody on that front. So I, I had always wanted to be involved in something, and mm-hmm. I landed at Mission St. Louis, and you guys haven't been able to get away. Man, appreciate you, man. Appreciate <laughs> you. That's a, he's been serving with kids and all types of stuff. Kids on his hip, <laughs> facilitating classes, and that's commitment right there, man. That's commitment. And thank you to your wife as well, man, for lending us yourself and your time because we know the reality of that. How old are your kids? So I've got a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a little boy who just turned four. Yeah, those are the ages where you shouldn't be volunteering anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's uh, that's awesome. So this is this is Daniel Hawthorne again. Um, So I'm originally from. I was born in LA. I moved to Austin when I was young. That's where I grew up at. And I moved to St. Louis. Uh, like I said, I've been here almost seven years. Uh, people, people were like, "Dude, you're going backwards. Like you should go to Austin, go to LA." I was right. like, "Nah, man, I'm I'm good. I'm actually met my wife here. We got two beautiful girls. Um, this is home." But uh, a little bit about <laughs> yeah, my, my background and upbringing. Um, you know, a uh, family of five. I was middle child and had the middle child syndrome in a lot of ways. And uh, you know, in some cases, I. Um, you know, would be the only, only, uh, you know, only child in this in this specific uh, particular school. So my younger siblings, they were in elementary together. When I was in middle school by myself, my two older siblings were in high school together, stuff like that. And um, so it allowed me to kind of branch off and kind of create my own personality uh, in a lot of ways. And um, you kind of meet my siblings, and you're like, man, y'all, are, y'all are different. Um, but uh, for me, it's uh, it's always been about giving back to the community. So I am my I didn't talk about what I do, but I do a software sales, so I've been in the tech space for uh, going on 10 years. And in the tech space, there's not a ton of uh, black professionals. So I, in a lot of ways, I had to kind of look at people who didn't look like me and try to navigate those waters. Uh, and so, you know, I always knew that I wanted to uh, invest my time into the community. And for me, that's uh, underserved communities and, and making sure that people who look like me know that there are opportunities uh, out there that exist that maybe they didn't know about. Uh, so um, I've been with uh, working with Mission St. Louis, like I said, for about five years. I uh, started out as a volunteer, and I always tell Jason this: like when I first came in, I said, "Hey, I want to be a, a mentor." He's like, "Dude, like if you're gonna do this, you got to do this uh, because uh, there's a lot of uh, black men, particular, who come through, said they wanted to be volunteers, and then they just they disappear." Uh, so I made it a point that I wasn't gonna be that that person, and um, and uh, you know, had made sure to, to stay involved and. Uh, I guess just hit a year of serving on the board, uh, so that's kind of a new new thing for me. Relatively new, uh, but but my my uh, aspiration and my or I think my legacy will be be held is more in the uh, in this sector, not so much in the corporate world where I work. You know, so right now I'm I'm actually finding opportunities in my my software sales job to bridge the gap between what I do there and how mm-hmm. that can connect to the community and the work I want to do here. This is Pete again. Um, as I said earlier, I'm an attorney here in St. Louis. I grew up in the Lou, but uh, actually in the U. Mm. I grew up in University City. Okay, and, okay, U uh, City. So, I, and and I grew up sort of a unique family. My mother was Jewish. My father was not. So, sort of a split home from a religious standpoint. <laughs> but um, it, you know, it was great because they both had hearts for people. My father was the head of a newspaper union. 
which is designed, you know, just by its very nature to care for other people. And my mother, some of the listeners may know uh, Harriet Woods, was my mother. She was the first woman elected statewide in the state of Missouri and had a great heart for people. Her issues were constantly focused on caring for people. She was out in the community herself, first as a councilman, then a state senator, and then lieutenant governor. And I, from, from each of my parents, sort of developed this mentality. I was not a believer back then of, uh, of being of service. That's what life is about, it's serving other people. And so I've always sort of had that mindset. You know, I, I, I went through, went to Mizzou, played NFL football briefly, and then came back and went to law school at WashU. So the opportunities were not as great until later on. And, um, the, you know, I have had the opportunity to serve in different uh, Christian organizations, but more service-oriented stuff. So my involvement with Mission St. Louis started, again, about nine years ago. And the way it happened is I got invited to one of a banquet, a fundraising banquet. And uh, I... I uh, Ended up going to lunch with Josh Wilson and mm-hmm. Darren Jackson. Ah, Darren. The, shout out to Darren Jackson. <laughs> shout out to, to DJ. But um, they basically just come, just come and sit in and see what it's all about and, you know, see if it makes it's a good fit for you. So I went for uh, was then Thursday night, a small group mm-hmm. uh, community sort of, and, and I sat in at a table. And the, the man that was supposed to lead the group at that table that week did not show up. So I was like facilitating. And as the session ended, one of the guys looked at me and said to me, and it was it was Kelly, who was mm-hmm. a poster boy that year. Uh, Jay knows who Kelly is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he turned to me and says, so are you coming back next week? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like, what can I say at that yeah, point? Right. So it's sort of been coming back for nine years. Uh, <laughs> so you hear that voice every time. I hear that voice every time. And in fact, Kelly still contacts me from Arizona every once in a while. And wow. In the last year, I've heard from Kelly. So That's solid. Um, yeah, but so there's, there's a lot of Kellys out there. Mm-hmm. And I know each of us has had an opportunity to, to impact guys and have personal experiences. So That's solid, that's man. One of the things I like to do on this podcast is shoot elephants in the room. So I'm just going to take an elephant and shoot it real quick. Um, You know, two white guys, right? Um, One born in St. Louis, ends up doing work with individuals in the heart of North St. Louis. My question would be, how has your perspective changed about those particular individuals since you started working with them? Like, in what ways do you see roles of how you were raised, roles of your background, perspective, that once you started to spend time with individuals, it began to be reshaped and changed? And in what ways? You can jump in first. This is Garrett again. Um, I grew up in a quasi-rural area in Missouri. And one of the things that is easy to fall into if you're not growing up around people, growing up around African-Americans, growing up in an area like North St. Louis, is to kind of unfairly assume that too much is the responsibility and the fault, so to say, of the individuals who 
are, you know, whether they're ending up in jail or, or whatever else may be happening. And I think one of the things that comes from developing those relationships, seeing kind of firsthand, learning the stories is a really much more uh, effective or better understanding of the various factors that leads to whether it's incarceration or, or poverty or whatever else may, may be facing the individuals that we work with. And it, it personifies everything. And it's much harder once you've developed those relationships to fall back to that tendency to blame. And I think that's a really important thing that can, can come from the type of work that Mission St. Louis does. Man, I appreciate that. Uh, this is Pete again. I appreciate Garrett's comment about relationships because I think I have this philosophy mm-hmm. that life is about relationships, that we're left here. God has left us here to be in relationship. So what do we do with that? So, you know, again, as I said before, I grew up in the U in University City. My class, I'm dating myself now, mm-hmm. 1974 high school mm-hmm. graduation class, Young guy, young guy. Yeah, young guy, really young. <laughs> but it was the last class at City that was more white than black. Mm. So for me, I was still part of the majority, but just barely. Mm. But, you know, I had all kinds of relationships and dated black ladies at the time and felt very comfortable in those kind of relationships. Which would have even been probably taboo at the time. At the time. Some, yeah. well, there are people who come back to me still and mm. say, you know, you were blazing a trail. And for me, you know, as far as I was concerned at my school, if it was half black and half white, if I was cutting down half my opportunity, <laughs> if I was excluded, <laughs> part of that population. You know? Sound like a player's mentality <laughs> oh, right yeah. there. <laughs> you know what? It's all, well, we won't go too far with that. But the point is, um, I felt very comfortable. And plus, having played sports, you know, Lots of African Americans in the NFL and in college, although much less so back then at Mizzou. Back then, it was still, you know, predominantly white team at least at the time I started. Um, but as a result of that, and the thing that I've had to learn is my comfort level doesn't mean others are comfortable with me, and there's still an element of privilege that I enjoyed that others did not have. And I still have to sort of win over and help others understand that, you know, I'm going to be real in this, in, in trying to not just help others, but to be in a relationship with others. Mm. Because I benefit from each mm. of those relationships, too. But I can't assume too much. And, and Jason and I have had conversations about this, mm-hmm. so those, those hard talks about, you know, I, I have to be prepared to listen more carefully because I sometimes, and this is a trait that I have anyway, I assume I know things Mm. and I don't always know. But, you know, part of what my experience has been in Mission St. Louis and volunteering as a mentor and also as a table leader where I'm sitting with four or five guys who are often either all African-American or predominantly so is work on that relationship, connecting, learning how best to help them trust me hmm. because I know, and I, I have asked the question, you know, how many of you feel comfortable or can trust someone with a white face? Hmm. Because, you know, recognizing the 
the, you say the elephant in the room, you know, sometimes it's even being able to work past those things. And what can I do to help them mm. be able to relate to me as opposed to expecting that they're, they have to relate to me because I'm leading at the table. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. so it's got, I have to make myself approachable. Which is still, a, even when you think about that, even that is a privileged perspective. Like relationships are always supposed to go two ways. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah, they always are. But and, you know, I I came in at times with the expectation that, hey, they had to follow the rules that I was, you know, Mm. laying down here. And and I was just implementing with the program. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, my assumption of a position of authority wasn't necessarily a given. Mm. So what I had to do was work and make myself approachable. And what I, you know, if you look at the practical, I'm going on here, but. You know, it's making myself available, making, you know, let me, you know, have them call me, you know, me meeting guys outside the class and, and making an effort to go where they live, you know, maybe as opposed to where I do. Of course, I live in the West End of the city of St. Louis, uh, not the central West End, but the West End um, by, uh, by a conscious decision on my part, because I, I, when I lived in Wester Groves, out in the county, guys couldn't come out to me. Yeah. You know, so now I'm in a place where guys can come to me. In fact, you know, guy I developed relationship with, like the first year of this program, lives two blocks from me. Mm-hmm. And you know, when someone I need somebody to watch my house or you know whatever else, he's at my house. And that gives you the opportunity to further that relationship, exactly. which is which is very very important. Yeah reflect my trust in him mm-hmm. because for me to be trusted, I have to express that I trust others. Too. Exactly. Talking about the two way streets. That's good. Daniel, what about you? Like your experience, like coming in different perspective, obviously, what have you kind of um, learned from working with individuals that have come through the program? Yeah. So I, I think one of the main things for me is that, um, you know, I've been able to stay attached to some of the, some of the, uh, root of my background. So even though I've achieved some level of success, what you know, whatever that means for me, um, it allows me to like stay in tune with where I came from, and that there are other, you know, people like me that just need that opportunity to go out and you know build their own success, whatever that looks like for them. Um, and so I've been, uh, you know, uh, to to North City, and um, you know, having some of the guys that I've mentored uh, live there, but. Again, not being from St. Louis, you know, there there wouldn't be much reason for me to be there unless I knew someone there. And so being able to go back in that and see, you know, see for myself, like, you know, going to the YMCA, playing basketball with, with guys in the area uh, and things like that. It just allows me to stay attached to that. And, and kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about, I think, um, as as black men, sometimes in, uh, I think in general, uh, when you start to you know, branch out and be successful, you start to kind of leave behind um, those other generations who, who need your help. And so, again, for Mission St. Louis, for me, has been uh, I've been able to, like, make sure that I am still doing my part um, and not just, you know, because like you were saying, Pete, about um, for me, serving is where my legacy is. It's not in the corporate world and stuff that I'm doing right now. It's more about me feeling fulfilled uh, because I'm helping other individuals, but they're also reciprocating that and, and building me and developing me as, as a person. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting doing this work. You had something? Uh, yeah, I was going to add something. Real yeah, quick. go ahead. I, I think 
I wanted to add. And it's an open discussion. Feel yeah. free to jump in. It's not super formal, <laughs> fellas. So, yeah, you don't got to be nice about so, the microphone. You know, we all have been involved in different areas of the program. So, Pete comes to this through kind of a lens of being involved in the small groups and what we used to call the biblical manhood sessions. And you've been involved in the uh, more direct mentoring. And then on my side, I had been involved in the, the teaching around job training. And readiness. For, yeah, and, and readiness. And one of the things that I learned early on that I think kind of reiterates some of the points that these guys have touched on was that it's really easy to come in as if you have all the answers and you're ready to kind of impart this knowledge on everybody. <laughs> and you, you learn so quickly that, that the guys coming through the program, one, you're going to learn just as much from mm-hmm. through every one of these sessions and you got to kind of be open to that, that impact. But then two, you know, we kind of joked early on that we're, we're not running off a script right now. And you almost can't run these, the whether it's a class or just meeting with one of the guys off of a script, like you're able to really set out what you intend to get across to them. Instead, it's always got to be trying to kind of come to the table with a, a little bit of humbleness with the understanding that you might have been blessed with some experience, knowledge, whatever it may be in our lives, but we need to be able to crafted in such a way to sort of fill the needs of each individual class or individual relationship and not not come to, whether it's volunteering here or anywhere else, with an idea that you've got all the answers. And humility yeah. mm. is humbling. I mean, I, I, I joke, but <laughs> humility is a struggle because, again, we're asked to participate because we have some gifts. Mm-hmm. The assumption is, we have some something gift. to offer, something to offer to come in, but to recognize that we don't always have the answers is a huge deal. First time a guy asked me at a table, and I'm just lay it out there, and he said, mm-hmm. "What you're telling me, I can't sell a nickel or dime bag to pay for my kids' shoes." Mm-hmm. And I looked at him. So I, I don't know the answer. <laughs> Real talk. Real talk. You know, how, how does a guy on the street that he's in a program that's paying him a minimal amount of money to participate with the goal of succeeding? Mm-hmm. But, you know, as I talked to the guys, I said, just like me, I spent seven years in college to get to the point where I was making, you know, something that I could. And even then, at that time, I couldn't support family on what I started out with. Right. But for these guys, you know, it may be the sixth or seventh job they get that mm. finally allows them to break through. So that first job, even then, is not going to get it for them. So what do they do in the meantime? Mm-hmm. And when you've seen the, the terrible stories, and we all know them, Jerry is the one I'm thinking mm-hmm. of, where a guy was doing his best and still struggled and had to address things in other ways, I, I, I don't have an answer for those guys. Hey, it's interesting. I often talk about what I call right, wrong, and reality, right? And um, just the idea that your reality will shift your right and wrong. And one of the examples that I often use is that plane crash. It happened in 72. It was a rugby team. They crashed into a glacier. Um, when the plane crashed onto the glacier, several people survived. Um, and they, But they were waiting to be rescued. While waiting to be rescued, they starving, they about to die. 
what they end up doing. They end up eating the people that had died on the plane. And now to some people that may sound horrific, but if you would have asked those people an hour before that plane crash, would you ever eat a person? They all would have emphatically said no. <laughs> but here the reality of their situation caused them to make decisions they, they never would have imagined making. On top of that, think about the response of the families of the people that they actually ate, who now mad that they made that decision to try to survive. And then think of the weight that they carrying after knowing that they did something that they felt like they had to do, even though it would hurt all of these people, but they felt that need to survive. Now you wrestling with everybody you hurt because you trying to survive while wrestling with the idea that you need to survive anyway. And I often say that when you put in a situation, you don't know how you're going to respond until you have to be in that situation. And then also is coupled with the cognitive uh, behavioral part of it, which is the way that we see things, the way that we're taught to respond to things is something that we carry along with us. So if you're the person that says some people I, I tell my friends all the time to grow up where I grew up at, man, you know, everybody that get broke don't feel like they got to sell dope to make money right. or don't feel like they got to do this or that. To, that's not the way of the yeah. entire world. But to them, that's the way you think. If I'm starving, I eat by any means. You know what I mean? And um, if you ain't never been in positions where you feel like go over desperate men. Absolutely. And, and, and it looks different. Looks different. In, in a lot of different contexts, but the reality is the same. Mm -hmm. You do what you have to do to survive. Exactly. So, you know, I think a lot of that even plays a role in the part of how we interact and connect with individuals, you know, and, you know, seeing things, you know, change, which brings to mind. I know you guys have you have stories and things that you've experienced, but also just from a programming standpoint, you know, um, dealing with a nonprofit, working with nonprofit change in a nonprofit dealing with, you. Dealing with me. <laughs> I'm definitely something to deal with. <laughs> but. Like what's been your because what I want to do is make sure that we get an opportunity to talk about like changes, things that you everything that Mission St. Louis does ain't right. You know what I mean? Like we don't make all the right decisions. You know what I mean? Um, but what have been your experiences, both good and bad, as you've navigated not just the organization, but um, not just the individuals you work with, but the organization as well? Yeah, I think one thing that I've seen and I'm at least tenured here at the table, but one thing that I've seen is just this focus on the holistic transformation, uh, the holistic support of the community that we serve, right? Um, so being able to bring in, you know, the financial aspect of things. Um, I've talked with, you know, Josh even about other things that, that you know, that, that I am personally, actually some, some things related mm -hmm. to boxing um, and bringing stuff like that into where, you know, it's not just about a one dimensional change because in order to make change, you, you need to touch on all these different layers. Um, and so I've 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 seen that, and that's what actually has has really got me, um, you know, uh, promoting Mission St. Louis with other people. It's like, well, what what do you guys do? And I'm like, well, you want to know? Let me tell you about it. So mm -hmm. it's um it's it's been fascinating to see such positive change in this in this type of organization because it is hard. Like I mean, nonprofit space is is hard if you've not been in this. And so uh, the fact that that They've been this successful for this long and have such a great reputation. Um, I'm just like I'm, I'm proud to be a part of uh, part of what they're building. Appreciate that. What's been interesting for me, and I've said this in different contexts. I mean, the first thing is this is start off as a Christian organization, decidedly Christian. Very organization true. Organization 
with messages focused on scripture and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But again, the reality is not every guy comes here with that background or willing to accept that message. So we have to be not only careful, but, but also we have to, as Jason was talking about, you know, we have to run with it. We have to go with the flow and be prepared to address guys exactly where they are. Pause there for a second. I want to ask you a question in light of yeah. what you just said. Yeah. When you first started, I feel like over the last 10 years, even the religious perspectives, specifically within inner city communities, has changed in a lot of ways. Like, you know, I grew up, church is all we did. <laughs> you fast forward to now, like <laughs> kids, some kids have never even been to never even seen the inside of a church. What have you seen change as it relates to was it easier on the front end being able to talk to guys about a theological perspective about your faith in Jesus? Have you did you see any of that change over the course of time in terms of how guys respond to that message? Uh, what have you seen from your perspectives? Just in light of what you just talked about, us starting yeah. as a Christian organization, like, well, um, I don't know that it's from my perspective, and of course, I've been on, you know. COVID timeout for a, little, for a little bit now. So we're talking about information that's dated, you know, almost two years now uh, from active involvement, although I stay in touch with guys. But, you know, even with my kids who were raised in a Christian home, I'm not trying to change the subject, but mm -hmm. they aren't as focused on, you know, their relationship with God and especially through a formal like church building and church and then and so I think society as a whole has 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 shifted to a certain extent and being more open to different perspectives and it, it, from the very beginning I think my perspective was we're going to hold the line mm -hmm. that this is a Christian organization Scripture is going to be presented mm -hmm. the perspective is going to be and I'm going to keep bringing it back mm -hmm. you know bringing it back to that Christian perspective. But what I've understood and, and come to know better as time has gone on, I got to relate to these guys, number one. Mm -hmm. And if there's something that I'm doing that's turning them away from the, the relationship with <coughs> me or the program, other guys in the group, then that's not a good thing. Because there's time and you know, our program for eight weeks, mm -hmm. right? That, that's how we had four uh, eight-week sessions a year that we were operating from and making real progress in eight weeks was a challenge all by itself. And to try to hook a guy and turn him, you know, <laughs> it's like the Titanic sometimes, you know, you can't turn a guy and get all that accomplished in that relatively short period of time. But what you can do is get a relationship going, mm -hmm. connect with them, stay in touch with them afterwards, which is what, you know, our role is with people. I mean, that's the role that all of you guys got to play in, in different in different ways. What about you guys? What Have you seen any change um, religiously in how guys handle religious information um, over the course of time, even for you personally, mm -hmm. pro pro programmatically? I think the biggest difference just in the, let's say, a snapshot of 10 years uh, has been early on in the organization's history, the association was so explicit that the guys who were coming to the program were almost doing it 
with the intentionality of him being on this Christian foundation. Mm -hmm. So I think there was more of an expectation in the earliest stages. But at the same time, I haven't necessarily seen a dramatic swing in the way that we get engaged with and the willingness to engage with those those concepts necessarily. I mean, honestly, at the beginning of every session, there is a struggle to get the guys to be authentic. We, we use this, uh, you know, phrase that it, there is this tension, especially on the job training side, of whether or not you're going to be you or you're going to be fake mm-hmm. and do what, you know, the job what looks to be what, right. Yeah. So we always kind of go back and forth on whether or not they're giving an answer that is, is real for them or if they're telling you what what you what they think you want to hear. So those aspects of it are always there and you always have to kind of really engage on their level and generate a level of trust. So I think that in the limited amount of time that 8 week period we're always those are the issues that come front and center more so than a skepticism around mm. or uncomfortableness around biblical concepts or things like that. So I, it's just in terms of what I feel that that is more of a constant presence in the way that we have to engage more so than a like real dramatic societal difference around whether or not they're used to church or not. Mm. So uh, for me, my experience has been, um, you know, just, just kind of building those relationships and then it coming up naturally in conversation that, you know, I also, I didn't say this earlier, but I, I go to the journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although the past, uh, the COVID timeout has been very disruptive to that, uh, actually attending physically. And then I, I have a six-month-old and a, and a uh, two-year-old. So yeah, that's also don't get to do nothing. That's also been hard. <laughs> Why are you here right now? <laughs> <laughs> daycare. Uh, but I, I, so, so I think the, um, you know, just the, the fact that you're focusing on the relationship Things like that naturally come up, and then whether there's opportunity there for to dig deeper in with one of the guys, then that's always something that I, you know, that that I do. If and, and but I don't, um, I don't force that with them, and that's been I think that's that's going really well because it's actually come up with all the guys that I've mentored um, mm. naturally. Interesting, and I just want to add one more thing. You know, when we were doing the old way the groups ran, I'm not sure what's going on right now, but again, we start off the first week with a session called Worldview. Mm-hmm. And so it was the opportunity to learn about the guys at the table and for them to learn about me. And I was able to share sort of my worldview, but it was really about what's your history? Mm-hmm. Where are you coming from? Absolutely. You know, it, you know I, I'd often ask, and maybe not fairly, but ask how many guys at the table grew up with a positive male role model in their house, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it typically you'll get one, maybe two. And then as your time goes on, you find, you know, there was even struggles in that. But, you know, I, I had my struggles with my own father. Right. And you know, I give me an opportunity to open up and share because mm-hmm. my father, I know he loved me. Mm-hmm. And I never once heard it from him. Mm-hmm. He never said it. Never hugged me. He was old school, right? Right. He was there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I had to learn that all myself. And these guys have to understand, like we all have to learn, that there is a process 
that we're still maturing. We're not where we're going to be long term yet. And but to do that, you have to understand where you where you are, where you're mm, starting. That's solid. That's solid. In terms of the individuals that you've had the opportunity to work with, um, who's someone that stands out like you know in your mind? You know. Particularly, I got a story. <laughs> so there was this dude that came out of Walnut Park, mm-hmm. Larry Farmer. Uh-huh. I don't know if you know Larry, uh-huh. but I, I thought he was out doing comedy or something somewhere. Mm-hmm. But he was one of my first sessions, and Larry, I'm sure he wouldn't mind my telling this, but you know his struggle was, you know, in the community dealing with drugs, mm-hmm. right? Both use and dealing himself. And so we talked, and I'm a problem solver. That's the way I approach things. And so I said, all right, so where do you do this? He goes, man, it's at the barbershop. Mm-hmm. He goes, we go to the barbershop, that's where you do, you go in the back room, you take a little taste, whatever else. I said, so what do you need to do to get away from this? He goes, man, I got to stop going to the barbershop. <laughs> so from that point forward, I started bringing up in every session, not every guy went to a literal barbershop, mm-hmm. but we talked about where do you struggle? Where is the area for me? You know, I can be greedy. I can be lazy. You know, I can be um, egotistical, lack humility, all those things. And for me, my barbershop is some of those things that I struggle with. Not aren't necessarily a drug issue, um, you know, I've been blessed to have money, so it's not like money is my entire focus. But those are things that I struggle with. Mm. And so every week I would talk to the guys and say, all right, did you go to the barbershop this week? (laughs) And they first start off saying, what are you talking about? And then over time, they start sharing a little bit. My barbershop could be pornography, could be ladies, Mm. could be, you know, not dealing with their kids, whatever it is. Yeah. Mm. And and it became a buzz phrase, but it was able to, again, it's connecting, yeah. it's recognizing that all of us mm. have those things we struggle with. Definitely. We all have our barbershops. Actually, some of us like getting our hair cut. <laughs> <laughs> I just got my <laughs> <laughs> hey, You know, I cut my own hair, so that's really a problem. Oh, no, nothing there, nothing there, man. So, I, I mean, every session has the strong personalities. And you remember those guys because they, they just engage with you in such a unique way. But then also challenge you to address some of these questions that are tough, that you don't always have good answers for. Mm-hmm. Um, Daryl like, jumps to mind because he had something to say every session. <laughs> but then, I, and to take it a little bit different direction, shoot another elephant, so to say. The other ones that stand out are the ones that we've lost. Mm. The guys who end up, you know, being subject to to violence in the community. Mm. And it's that thing that, you know, until I started working here, I just wasn't exposed to. And I'm going to be very honest Mm. about that. And it is such a endemic issue that one, it helps you to understand a little bit about what a lot of these guys are facing and just have grown up with having to become accustomed to. But it's it's a lot of those guys that still stick out and never gets any easier. It never, never does. It's interesting you say that because something, uh, something comes to mind for me and the individual wasn't actually someone that was in our program, but it was 
this situation occurred while we had programming going on. And, um, I, you know, a young man was killed across the street from my building. Now, um, the most interest, interesting thing, you know, for me, like, you know, I grew up in the city. Like, I didn't see more death than I care to really tell y'all about, you know. And um, there's no feeling like seeing a, a dead body, like watching life leave somebody. And I saw that happen to this young man. It, he was 17. It was his birthday. Um blew me away, not because I hadn't seen death, though. At that moment, what I think I was reminded, because I just broke. I was like, I had nothing in me. Like, I, I see, I'm the one who ran over to his body. I'm the one that flagged the police down. And I remember going home being like what I felt like was overly emotional. Like, because I just seen people die and then walked away. Like, I just don't need to end up like that. Like, no tears, no emotion, no nothing. In this case, I find myself overwhelmingly emotional. And what I realized was that I wasn't numb anymore to those circumstances and situations. Prior to, I was used to seeing that. It was my normal, like, you know what I mean? Like, so it, it, it was. it's, it's interesting because um, Ormond, that was a young man's name, rest in peace to that young man. But it was interesting because at that moment, I really realized that it was a bittersweet moment. Obviously, you don't want to see anyone lose their life. But the sweetness was in realizing, like, man, I feel alive now. You know what I mean? So it just makes me think about individuals that we work with who see that all the time. You know what I mean? And how you have to turn a part of your emotions off. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you don't have to live in that state of, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's deep. At peace. What about you? Uh, for, so... Because I haven't spent as much time, you know, in the in the actual uh, the room setting, uh, most of my time as a mentor is one on one. Outside of that, uh, with with some of the guys, uh, one that you know sticks out to me is, is Maurice Maurice Gorey. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you know, we're same age, and so I think about you know when I was graduating from college, and this is smart dude like intelligent i mean J- jason no um this dude is 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 extremely intelligent so many times he asking me stuff i don't know <laughs> questions. Um, and now and even now he's he's started a trucking business like dude is like killing it and but i think back i think back to that opportunity thing i mentioned earlier where it's like i'm graduating from college and he's you know he's he's going off and, and doing some time and like if he had a you know if he had done maybe one right a different decision right um how much his life could have changed, mm. and and it's awesome to see the rebound that he's he's going through right now, and we stay in touch, and going to try and get him to come out to watch uh, that fight as well. Mm. But um, but he's definitely someone who, when I think about what I'm doing here, he's someone who continues to challenge me and be better. Mm. Uh, and the interesting thing about Maurice is he grew up in my neighborhood. Like he was a young dude, I raised Maurice. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like. So I knew him like when he first started using heroin, like when he first started robbing people, like that stuff I was already doing. He was watching me do that stuff and trying to emulate stuff that he saw me and other people in the neighborhood do. And he's always been like a really smart dude. Like you like, man, why you do why you doing this stupid stuff? Like that's the question most people would ask me. But it's been amazing, even encouraging for me, like for him to come into the program, like that's Jason. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and the respect that he had for me, but more importantly, like seeing his growth. Like, man, dude was just on point. And it's though it's it's interesting because those balance of stories, like we just went from 
somebody losing their life to seeing somebody doing amazing. And that's the difficulty of doing this kind of work. You know what I mean? Like, especially if you ain't accustomed, like you, like you mentioned, this times we had come to class and somebody done been killed. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you dealing with the weight of that. And for me, it's sad, but that's norm for me. But for individuals that serving, volunteering, it's not a norm for you. Like that's a whole well, the whole deal about dropout rate, mm-hmm. you know, and the challenge, and I know there's been some changes in the program, the eight-week format mm-hmm. did not always lend itself well. You know, some guy, I mean, we had two guys that I was at my, at my table got picked up on an old warrant mm-hmm. the week of graduation, mm-hmm. right? The last week before they that they had to finish to graduate. Hmm. So now the question is, did they waste all that time? You know, do they graduate anyway? Are they recognized for that? But it's just that, that reality, as you described it earlier, just came back and bit them, hmm. you know? But but the, the problem and the, and the question is, how can we avoid these guys getting bit by their past, you know, on an ongoing basis? Can we reverse that process and the hope? Even though we're disappointed constantly because you start off with five guys at your table and you end up one-on-one or, right. you know, with two guys at the end of the eight weeks, is it worth it? Mm. And the answer is, yeah. Absolutely. Change one, two guys. You know, if you look at the graduation over time, you know, a huge impact. Mm-hmm. It can. And when you think about these guys, even if they aren't finishing that program, if their mindset has changed, you know, now I'm be focused more about I can overcome the barrier of not having had a relationship with my kids. And now I, I am focused because that's mm-hmm. one of the things I like to talk to guys about. Are you in contact with your kids? What's keeping you from doing that? Well, the baby mom's, you know, she won't let me talk. I said, well, you tell me, have you gone over and knocked on the door? You know, have you, you have a phone number, you know, whatever it takes. And guys got to swallow their pride sometimes. You know, and I've done the same thing, you know, not necessarily with my kids. Although, you know, my kids may say I don't reach out to them enough. They won't, <laughs> they won't say too that. Much, too much. They won't say that. <laughs> right, they, right. They're tired of hearing from me. Definitely. But, uh, but the point is, guys get changed even in increments mm. sometimes and that can make an, a difference mm-hmm. and when you look at it cumulatively i don't know how many graduates over the many years and what kind of impact that's had not enough yet mm-hmm. it's still not done absolutely but there have been inroads when i talk to guys and come back and i ask them you know are you in contact with your kids yeah man they've been living with me absolutely what you know, going from nothing to that kind of relationship is really where the gratification comes. Man. And, you know, we started this conversation about what's what have we seen change in Mission St. Louis and what's kind of the nature of not-for-profit work. And one of the struggles always has been that it's so many new people coming in each session, new volunteers, new employees. One of the amazing things that I've seen over the course of the last five or six years is the the benefit of the continuity of having you, Jason, of having Josh there as sort of a constant presence. And that's one thing that I think, uh, <laughs> let's not give him too much credit. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but with that churn of volunteers, we've had training sessions, how to try to deal with some of the, these issues that it is 
even as somebody who has to try to encourage these other volunteers, I, you have those struggles and discouragement when there's the guys that drop out or whatever else. And one of the things that I think, I, I can't remember who told me this, but another longtime volunteer might have been Joe. Um, mm-hmm. We all know um, that at the end of the day, it's this eight week session. We've all kind of admitted you're not, there's no silver bullet. We're not going to magically turn everything around in just eight weeks. But for a lot of these guys, they've never had a presence of people encouraging them or wanting the best for them. It, you know, mentioned before, Pete said that when they're dealing with us white guys, they're used to being judged. And that's the immediate reaction that they're used to seeing so if nothing else happens other than knowing that they've got this organization here that they've got people encouraging them wanting the best for them and not judging them if something does go wrong you know that's that's new to a lot of these guys and it it hopefully can help to to serve to be a longer term in progress definitely man well i appreciate you guys uh support your your commitment um, and everything that you give to the program. And I'm going to close with a question. Um, and maybe for some that's been listening, when we talk about right, wrong, or reality decisions that guys have had to, had to make, and you may not fully understand, and I understand that. Um, and maybe there's times where some of us sitting at this table didn't understand. So there's a kind of a scenario that I pose to people, and I'm going to close with this scenario. Had a good friend. He did nine years in a federal penitentiary. Um for something that was definitely wrong. He got out, got his CDL, started working a job, making $36 an hour, doing better than he'd ever done in his life. Got custody of his two daughters, bought a home, truck, everything. One day he's with his father, who's a bus driver. They go have dinner. He goes back home. The next day he's on his way to pick his daughter up from from school and his father calls and says, hey, while I was with you, I left my legal firearm in your truck in the armrest. Now, this guy just did nine years in the federal penitentiary, and he's on federal papers. So if he gets pulled over, he's going directly to jail. Everything that he just worked for this last three years is gone. On his way to pick his daughter up, he gets pulled over by the police. Police pull him over, come up to the car. He asks, well, why did you pull me over, officer? The officer says, you you look suspicious. License and registration, please. He gives him license, give him registration. Officer goes back to the car, runs his name. He's looking through the rearview mirror. He notices that five other cars pull up. So he knows now when the officer comes back, the officer is going to ask him to step out the car. Officer comes back up to the car. He lets the window down. He says, sir, can you please step out the car? Now, he knows that once he steps out this vehicle, they're going to find his firearm and he's going to jail. Like, there's probably going to be nothing he could do. Uh, My question is, for those listening and even to those at this table, if you're in that situation, do you run or do you stay? You're making $36 an hour. You have custody of your daughters. You're, doing, you're not involved in anything illegal. Your life is amazing right now. And you've been pulled over with this firearm. Do you run or do you stay? My perspective and I know it's impacted by my involvement. I just kind of need a yes or a no. Do you, do you run or do you stay? <laughs> I would stay, but I trust the system. And I know that's not true for everybody. Mm-hmm. Solid. Daniel, do you run or do you stay? I would stay. They're going to catch me anyways. Hmm. Interesting. I agree. I was about to say the same thing. You would stay. That if you run, 
it's going to catch up with you. Mm. You, yeah, right. you lose that job anyway. Interesting. Me, I'm definitely running every time because I'd rather put my life in the hands of me getting away than the system itself. Mm-hmm. That young man ran and that young man got away. He got away. They had his license. They had everything. Not only did he get away, but now they got his license. So they, they can catch him, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what did he do when he left and got away? He got a lawyer. And that, that felony went down to a misdemeanor. I'm not saying that it's right to run. Mm-hmm. What I am saying is that the, based upon how you view the system, mm-hmm. based upon how you view your circumstance, that's going to change the read. Like, I wouldn't even care about the possibility of getting away. The last piece is that he was in a position where he was able to pay for a lawyer so that he could then take care of the situation. Some people ain't even in that position. So I really just tell that story again, not to say that it's right to run or that not to, but just for even those that are listening to think through like there are circumstances that, and I ain't saying every person that run from the police has the right reason to run. Okay. So don't hear me wrong, but I am saying that there are cases where, you know, you don't know why you, you, you feel the need to make a certain decision. So part of the work that we all at this table get to do is get to help individuals think through when, why, and how they make those decisions and order other decisions that they can make um, in light of the circumstances that they face. So thank you again, man. Thank y'all for y'all time. Everybody listening. We appreciate you listening to the podcast and we'll see you next time. Holla. Thank you.